You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. One, two. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. What is that rock so Join me home. We'll have some fun when the clock strikes one. We're going to rock around the clock tonight. We're going to rock, rock, rock. Hey folks, ended up with a little bit of a bonus interview here with Daryl Morey. We talked about a lot more things than just his work on Massacre at Central High, and I really wanted to share that with you. If you know me, you know that I'm a big Happy Days fan. He does talk about working on the set of that, as well as some other things that I hope that you find to be of interest. So please go ahead and enjoy this, and let's do our Massacre at Central High episode so you can hear more of Mr. Morey talk about his time as David, the psychotic killer of Renee Dodler's film. Norman Lear has been in the news a lot lately with the uh, new documentary about him, and I know that you worked with him on on, uh, some television. Can you tell me a little bit more about Apple Pie? I think I had met Norman Lear prior to that. No, I think maybe that was the first time I met him. Um, Apple Pie was an interesting attempt at a sitcom during the heyday of sitcoms. And the plot was basically a woman played by Rue McClanahan, who puts an ad in the paper in 1932. This is just after the the Depression. And she puts an ad in the paper for a husband, a son, a daughter, and a grandfather. And Dabney Dabney Coleman applies for the father. Jack Guilford, the old Cracker Jack commercials, he applied for the grandfather. Caitlin Caitlin Ohini applies for the daughter, and I applied for the son. So Rue McClanahan, after extensive interviews, uh, hire, who brings us in as her family. And we lived as a family in this 1932 environment, uh, which was really fun for me because I'm in love with that era, the, the 30s and 40s. And it also gave the writers uh, an interesting uh, approach in bringing, um, you know, some of the history back, you know, whether, whether they'd be talking about FDR or they'd be talking about uh, the, the lingo of the day, the jargon of the day, or, uh, you know, what was big in the news in those times and, and things like that. There were lots of references that certainly the older generation was aware of and, and then the, the newer generation could either learn about or, or wonder what, what the hell does that mean. Uh, I think it was just offbeat enough that it didn't really catch on. We made 17 episodes or something and seven of them aired. And, um, I loved being on Apple Pie. I had a ball doing that show. I loved working with Norman Lear, one of the most uh, genuine, uh, funny, sweetest, intelligent men I've ever met in my life. It was an interesting, uh, for me, uh, way that I landed that job. Um, apparently, uh, they had, they had, they had this idea and they started putting it together and they were casting and they spent maybe eight, nine months looking to cast this junior. Junior was my, my character's name, Junior Hollyhock. And um, they they just couldn't find anybody. And they were just interviewing everybody in town over this long period of time. And they went to, to New York and Atlantic City and, you know, everywhere, all of L.A., and couldn't find anybody. And they finally settled on this uh, stand-up comic, young stand-up comic uh, named Mike Binder. And he was he was funny. I remember seeing his stand-up work. Uh, and he was funny. And they did this pilot. And when they looked at it, they thought, well, he's not a comedy actor. He's a stand-up guy. And it didn't work for them for some whatever reasons. 
And so they went back again, looking to cast this part. So another two, three, four months they were putting into finding this guy. Everybody and their brother went out for this thing. And my roommate at the time came home and he said he just had the worst audition he ever went on. Just He just blew it. And he said, you know, you'd be good for this part. And I said, what is it? He says, it's, it's a sitcom called Apple Pie. It's really weird. and <laughs> But, uh, you know, you should check into it. So I called my agents and I said, I just heard about this role, uh, Junior, in Apple Pie. Um, how come I haven't gone out on that? They, my agent said, yeah, how come you haven't gone out on that? So they, uh, <laughs> they set up an appointment for me. And I went out and uh, I read. And then they brought me back again. And they brought me back again and again. And I must have read six, seven, eight times. And finally, they decided to go back to New York, and they spent another month or so there. And then they came back, and they were looking at people all over again, and they would bring me back. And I forget who the casting agent was. It might have been – I forget who it was. could have been Jackie Birch, whoever it was. I, I became her go-to guy. She'd bring in two or three guys, and she'd save me for last to leave the last impression. And she was telling me constantly how much you know she hopes they finally just make up their minds, and she thinks I'd be great. And Thank you for being there all the time for her. And and at the same time in that last month or so, I was auditioning for a, what was going to be a feature film, which turned out eventually to be a TV movie. But it was a feature film with uh, a lot of the big TV stars like Lee Majors. And um, it, it was a, called Steel, and it was about the building of a high rise or a number of high rises. And my character was the young guy who wanted to join the big construction guys. It was like a in The Magnificent Seven, you've got that young guy following him all over the place and trying to trying to be like them. That's the kind of character I was. And I, I remember they finally cast somebody else for steel. And, um, at one, and then about like three, four weeks later, uh, my agents called and said, they fired the guy playing the kid on steel and they'd like to use you. You're hired. And this was on location, Kentucky and all over the South. And, and I'd be working with these great stars and it was supposed to be a feature film. And I thought, you know, that's wonderful. But if, if, if Jackie or whoever that casting director was calls me and has another interview for me and I'm not there, I'll feel like I kind of let him down because, you know, she's kind of counting on me. And my agent said, well, you know, that's not a guaranteed thing. We don't know what's happening with that. They haven't known for over a year what they're doing. And this is a job. And I said, well, okay, let me think about it. And I finally decided to turn steel down on the chance that this Norman Lear project would happen for me. And sure enough, they called me again the apple pie people and they had me come in and do a screen test with Rue McClanahan and Dabney Coleman and it went very well and I remember sitting around a table with the executives after this the, I guess the following week they'd seen the screen test and brought me back again and uh they were talking to me as Daryl asking you know about me and what kind of a kid I was and that kind they'd seen me do the scene a hundred times so this was to get to know me and at one point when we were all done one of the big executives says so how can we get a hold of you uh, if we need you. And I said, well, I'll be down in the parking lot in my car. If you need me, I'll just, <laughs> it was one of those answers where I was being completely honest. Like, well, I'll just hang out. If you need me, you know, I'll be downstairs in the car. And they just busted up laughing. And apparently that's kind of what junior was all about. He was just this sweet, innocent guy with, with all this, this, uh, you know, love to give and, and, uh, energy. And so I got the part in apple pie. I found out later that steel became a, not, did not become a feature film. It became a TV movie. Two or three stuntmen had died on the project. They fired a number of actors from it. It was it was a nightmare for everybody working on it. It went over 
budget and over time, and they had uh, weather problems. I mean, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And if you were to mention people back in those days that you were on steel, they'd cringe. And here I am in a Norman Lear new sitcom. And of course, he's got Ball and Family on the air, and he's he's the talk of the town. And I couldn't have been happier. I also knew from reading my biographies that he used to write for Jerry Lewis, and Bud Yorkin was a was a partner of his, and they used to write for the old Jerry Lewis Dean Martin films. And I was a huge Jerry Lewis fan as a kid, much to my father's dismay. But <laughs> uh, I couldn't have been happier to work with him. And he 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 was like a, a mentor and a, a wonderful wonderful guy. We were doing an episode of One Day at a Time. This is years later. I, I was kind of a semi regular on One Day at a Time. And during the production, during the, during the filming in front of the live audience at the studio, the lights went out. The house lights, the stage lights, everything went out. And um, during the filming, so everybody had to go backstage and wait till they figured out what the problem was. And Norman Lear came out and he started talking to the audience. And the audience was, I guess they were being nice enough, but they they just kind of sat there uh, looking at this guy. I don't know that they appreciated him at all. To me, certainly not enough. And uh, after he was explaining how television works and where this guy came from and the director of this particular show and here's some of the actors and their, their history. And he was giving these these great stories about, you know, show business. And the audience is kind of sitting there like la-di-da. And then he opened it up for questions and nobody was asking a question. And I thought, don't you people know who's in front of you? This is Norman Lear. Are you kidding me? And um, I went and I borrowed Schneider's belt. Um, Pat Harrington uh, played Schneider in the show. And I said, can I borrow your belt? And he goes, sure. And I took my shirt off and I, and I came back out from behind the bleachers. The audience was sitting in and I started yelling, okay, Frank, uh, try plugging that one in over there. We'll get these lights working any minute now. And oh, uh, sorry, Mr. Lear, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, uh, uh, so we'll, we'll have these lights fixed in a minute. And he goes, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm one of your technicians. I, I don't know exactly how this happened, but we'll fix it. And I'm doing, I'm doing shtick with them now. And now the audience is kind of laughing and we're, we're going back and forth and he's, He's like, I wasn't doing Jerry Lewis, but I was just kind of one of these, I was a little bit New York-y, you know, and I was kind of going like, you know, like uh, like this kind of guy. And uh, I'll have to have this straightened out in no time, sir. And and uh, he started playing with me. And finally, uh, I asked him if I could uh, maybe sing a song for these nice people. And he said, you want to sing a song? I said, sure. Can I sing a song? And he goes, well, yeah. So I, I hopped over the rail and I landed on, on my feet and I, he gives me the microphone and I started singing a Jolson song. And Right when I was done with the last chorus of tut tut tutsie goodbye, the lights came up and everybody applauded and I went back to work and he came up to me afterwards. He said, you know, you're going to probably be a big star. You've got chutzpah. And I said, well, thank you. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just, I kind of was getting annoyed. <laughs> I thought maybe you were in a little bit of a pickle there and I, I you know, I knew you, you could handle it, but I just, the audience was bothering me. I thought, let's, let's pick them up a little bit. And he said, you know, the, the danger in that is that now they've got to watch you play a character in the show. And having seen you come out as the technician guy, they've got to buy you in that. And if they don't buy you in that, our show goes down the toilet. I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't think about that. He goes, well, be careful next time. He said, you pulled it off this time, but just, you know, be careful next time. And I thought that was fantastic advice. And he was he was like that, though. He wasn't mad or anything. And he, he, he knew what I was what I was doing. And I, I guess it was the show off in me as well. But. I just I just wanted to go help him because he, I thought this audience isn't helping him. I'm going to give him a hand. I loved working with Norman there. Apple Pie, I thought, had great potential. The rest of the country didn't. And I got a chance to work with Dabney, who I became friends with, and Rue, who was the sweetest, most wonderful thing. And then to work with Jack Guilford, 
who I was crazy about because he came from burlesque and that was kind of my thing. And I, I really admired him. So we, it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. You know, you talked about sitting on um, Buster Keaton's lap. Yeah. And I, I love Buster Keaton. What was he like in real life? You know, he was sad. I mean, he, I didn't realize it as a child, just what he was going through and how difficult his life had become. Um, but he was a sad guy. In, he loved children. So in my presence, he was this fun clown and this sweet, uh, wonderful man. And at, at, the, at these dinner parties, you know, when everybody would gather in the living room and, and start talking... Um, sometimes the, it would be like some of the books I was reading, just jumping off the page in real life at me, listening to some of these people tell their stories and their experiences and what it was like making the general or that kind of thing. I, I was in love with Buster Keaton as most children were as the, the, as the world was at one point. And, um, I, I just thought he was this, this wonderful, sweet guy. I, I remember being mad at him because I couldn't make him laugh. And he sat there as the great stone face on purpose, not given in to me. And I did everything I could, you know, everything. I, I did my monkey. I did my Jolson. <laughs> it's a total joke. I, I was probably the biggest fool I've ever been, but it, it, it was so much fun. I just couldn't get him to get him to crack a smirk. But then when he wasn't, you know, in, engaged with me in that, in that manner, he, I remember him telling some wonderful stories and being, a wonderful house guest at these parties, and he loved my dad and my mother and my mom. So um, I, I I found out, you know, later, of course, just how difficult things were for him and how hard his life had become. But I didn't show in my experience with him as a little kid. I have to say, you, um, I am a huge Happy Days fan, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm really glad to be. Yeah, I. I, I uh, I seem to remember, and I can't remember which episode it was. I just seem to have this image of you rolling into Arnold's on this big old motorcycle. Yeah, 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 and just uh, God, you. It was great to see you come back as all these different characters. Which, of course, when I was a kid, I didn't necessarily understand when I was seeing it. Uh, hey, that's the guy who was this guy yeah. in another episode. Yeah. <laughs> what was your experience like working on that, and and especially uh, working on Joni Loves Chachi? Oh, wow. Those were some great times. Um, you know, Paramount, uh, was a great studio to work at for me. I loved it. And, um, uh, I had grown up watching four or five, six seasons of Happy Days thinking, geez, I should get on that show. And my mom would say, why aren't you on Happy Days? You're, you're the perfect guy for that kind of a show. I said, I know, I know. Well, when I first got my first audition, I remember being brought back a couple of times and I finally ended up meeting Gary Marshall and his, and his father, Tony. And they laughed at everything I did, and they they uh, they hired me like immediately for the, my first episode. It was a small part, but it was it, it was I had a ball. Um, the cast couldn't have been more professional. Uh, you know, working with Henry Winkler. Henry was the biggest thing going at the time. There was nobody bigger on television than Henry Winkler, and it was a thrill to be with him. And he was just as down to earth and as sweet as he could be. Uh, funny, very funny too, off camera, and uh, made everybody feel like they belonged. I remember one time I was talking to Annette, one of the, the extras. We were talking about how much we love brownies. And uh, the next day, Henry showed up with this big plate of brownies. Apparently, somebody had baked him brownies, and he was watching his weight. He said, I can't eat these. I heard you like brownies. That's the kind of thing he would do regularly. And just, just like a sweet man. And, uh, of course, I'm playing a complete goofball. I'm, you know, this little tough New York thug kind of kid or Milwaukee thug. And I love that. I love those characters, and I, I love that time period. 
and uh, uh, everybody everybody from the top brass down was just a pleasure to be with the, the crew, the wardrobe people. Um, then then uh, it wasn't long after they, they called me back to play another part, and uh, it was a different character in the same show, and I thought, oh, this is fun. And I think the first time I was on a rival team uh, gang uh, of, of Fonzies, I was like a second banana. Um, and then the next time I was on, I think I was the leader of, no, the second time on, I was another gang member. And then the next time I was on, I was the leader of the, the, uh, the, the warmongers. And I think that's the one you're referring to. I ride into Arnold's on my motorcycle and, and, uh, Al, Al says to me, uh, you can't ride that thing in here. This is a restaurant. Get that thing out of here. And I go, ah, relax, pops. It's a drive-in, isn't it? <laughs> and so, uh, I, I, I challenge Fonzie to a, a rumble. And, and of course, instead of it being a rumble, we have this challenge on the baseball field where we all ride our motorcycles around the bases and that kind of thing. And it, it, that was a ball for me to do. And I remember the, the wardrobe guy said to me, he wanted me to have some, some black leather boots. And I said, well, okay. And he said, there's a, there's a shoe store across the street here. Go there and tell them we sent you and buy yourself a pair of boots. And I bought what was probably a $200 pair of Italian leather boots that were perfect for my character and they fit wonderfully. And I never had a pair of shoes like that. And I was just excited. And they gave them to me after the, after the episode was completed. And I thought that was the most generous thing. I just love that. You know, I've never been one of these stars or anybody who are people are throwing gifts at me all the time. So I remember when I played Jughead over uh, at ABC for the Archie show, they had these giant baskets of fruit and gifts and things in our dressing rooms. I thought, this is fantastic. But I wasn't used to that <laughs> kind of treatment. And But that's the way they were at, at uh, working for, for the Happy Days people. Um, you know, they had Laverne and Shirley going on at that time, Morgan Mindy. Um, so Gary Marshall was very busy. And of course, they had other great shows on that lot, Taxi, and they had a dance show going on. And I would go from, we would all go from set to set and watch each other. And, you know, that was, that was during the time Jonathan Winters was on Mork and Mindy. And so we, we'd go watch them and they'd watch us. And we had these wonderful, um, lunches. Uh, you know, we'd do two tapings a night. And between the two tapings, we'd have a dinner or a lunch, lunch dinner thing. And they would invite buses of, um, unfortunate kids, uh, disabled children or mentally handicapped children. And they would come in in the droves and, you know, we, you'd have these tables, these long tables set up in the, on the soundstage. And, uh, it would be, you know, the cast from Taxi and our cast and tax from the ca- cast from all the different shows on the lot eating with these kids and, you know, just socializing and having a great time. And I thought that was a, a wonderful way to kind of give back and, uh, get a chance to meet some of the stars that they, they were watching on TV and probably never would have had an opportunity to meet otherwise. And, it was that kind of an environment. When they talk about working with a family, that's that's what it felt like for me. And every time I would come back and do a, another episode, I'd play a different character. And Gary Marshall would introduce me to people saying, this is Daryl Morey, terrific, terrific, uh, terrific gifted character actor. <clears throat> Either our, our audiences are very stupid or he's very good at what he does. <laughs> and uh, then uh, some time went by and they were casting Joni Loves Chachi. And, uh, I was brought in to read for the drummer bingo and I was doing bingo, very big, very loud, very out there kind of, kind of, uh, you know, pop eyes and, and uh, real high energy. And, uh, the other people that were auditioning did different takes on it. And Bob Pierce was doing like a surfer kind of a dude. Uh, and he was so funny and he was so good. And it got down to where they were going to cast this thing. And it was between Bob and myself. 
And I remember the last audition, he and I were, were in the, in the, uh, waiting room together. And we both, you know, loved, respected what our, each other's work. And we were looking at each other, smiling, thinking, it can go either way, you know, well, good luck. And then my agents called and said, I got the part. I said, terrific. So I drive to Paramount the day of the first day to read the script. And as I'm pulling into the, into the, my parking space, Bob Pierce pulls up next to me. And I thought, uh oh, uh oh, I'll bet somebody made a mistake. I don't know what this is all about, but one of us is going home. So Bob is smiling at me. I'm smiling at him like, let's go see what this is all about. And we walk into the, into the sound stage. And of course, the scripts are all around the table with your name on it and stuff. And sure enough, there's a script with my name on it. There's a script with Bob's name on it. We open them up and, uh, Bob is playing bingo the part we both auditioned for. And I thought, oh, no, no. And I got down to my name and I looked across and I'm playing a character named Mario. I had no idea who Mario was or what he was, but apparently Gary Marshall had written in this character for me just to keep me in the show. They loved Bob and they wanted me to and they thought, give them both a job, you know. But uh, I guess Gary Marshall, he, he, he would tell people, you know, Daryl did a number of happy days for us and uh, I keep giving him a chance. He, the kid can't get it right, so I'll just keep hiring him until he figures out how this works. And, uh, I, I played Mario through the, through the, uh, entire, uh, series and had a ball doing it. And, uh, turned out that I was Chachi's cousin. I'm, which made me Ponzi's cousin. So in my final, in, in all the different characters I played on Happy Days, I ended up as Ponzi's cousin. And, uh, and, uh, I was the key, keyboard, uh, player in the band. And, uh, I just had the most fun doing that show. Unfortunately, uh, from what I understand, um, there were a lot of problems, uh, with the show. We went through, I think in the 17 episodes we shot, I think we had about 11 or 12 different directors. Um, Gary directed an episode, uh, Lowell Gantz, one of the producers directed one, uh, Henry Winkler directed an episode or two. We ended up with John Tracy directing most of them and he was terrific, but it, it never really got its legs. I don't, I think, I think the Happy Days franchise was tired by this time. Um, I don't think Joni and Chachi, the romance thing was enough to sustain it for very long without them getting married. They finally did get married. And then kind of where do you go from there? What do you have to write for after that? So, uh, and there were problems with um, Scott's manager, who was his father, uh, where, uh, and then there was a failed summer romance between Aaron and Scott prior to us starting filming. So there were enough problems, I guess, that the thing didn't really stand much of a chance to succeed. The ratings were terrific because we followed Happy Days on Thursday nights, so we were killing on the ratings. People enjoyed watching the show. I just don't, I just think it got tired. I don't think it had the interest that, you know, 11, 12 years had gone by, and it was, I think it had done its thing. But for me, it was a complete pleasure to be involved with that group of people. Uh, although the writers were, were wonderfully fun to hang around. I remember talking to them about ideas I had for my character. I thought, if I'm just goofy and just kind of full of one-liners, I don't know how long I'll last, but maybe if I became a, like a friend of, of, um, Chachi's where he, somebody he could turn to to confide in things, maybe we could, I, I could, Mario could last longer or, or be more relevant. Uh, that didn't really happen. Uh, and, and it was kind of easy and fun for me to be goofy and, uh, pick on my sister all the time and that kind of thing. So I enjoyed doing it. I don't know that if it had gone for years and years and years, if it would have been the, most, um, uh, you know, uh, enjoyable work that I would have ever done. Uh, I mean, from the audience, maybe from the audience point of view, I think I've done better work. Uh, you know, I don't, 
I don't take anything away from what we all tried to do in that show, but uh, it didn't kill me when it was over, except it's wonderful to be in a series, and I really love working with those people. Now, are you still doing the teaching and everything? I am. I'm teaching privately, mostly now. Um, I was teaching at a number of different schools. I taught at one school for 15 years, and I taught at two other schools for five and six years. I taught for Tracy Roberts, who was a, a very uh, popular um, uh, – she helped create or uh, – well, out here in the West Coast, she helped create the um, New York Play, the New York Playhouse uh, Actor Studio out here. And I taught for um, Estelle Harmon for a number of years, who was one of the biggest uh, acting coaches in town. And um, then, uh, not too long ago, I worked for a couple of years at the Strasbourg Institute, um, which was a lot of fun for me um, I, because I'm not a method actor or teacher, but they brought me in because I do a lot of musical comedy, and they were trying with the success of Glee and television shows like that and revivals of Greece and uh, things on Broadway, they thought, let's, let's give some of our younger actors a chance to uh, explore that part of the field. So I, I was involved with that and had a ball and um, teaching mostly uh, privately now. And I'm doing, I'm doing quite a lot of theater. I direct a lot of, of theater out here in L.A. Uh, I'm keeping quite busy. Yeah, it seems like over the last few years you've been doing a, a ton of shorts and uh, some TV work. And how has the business changed? I mean, you were there in kind of the heyday of TV, which I know some people might say is more the 60s, but I consider it to be the 70s, versus now working in, I mean, some people are like, well, television's really now where it's at, where you can do long-form dramas and even, you know, so I'm, I'm curious how your experience has been comparing the two. Well, there's been quite a few changes. Um one of the one of the changes is that the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television Artists, AFTRA, have combined finally. Uh, they used to talk about that in the 70s, uh, and, you know, it took 35, 40 years, and they finally combined. I always had a fear that if they combined, there'd be that much more competition. But I've also felt that you're really not in competition with anybody else but yourself. If you go and do the best work you can do and just keep at it and don't worry about anybody else, you're going to get work. Uh, if you're, if you're right for that part, you'll get the job. It doesn't really matter if you're up against two people or a hundred people for the same job, in my opinion. But, um, having the, the unions combined, I think is, it was well overdue and I think it's a good thing. There's, there's a nice strength and there's more opportunity now. Also, in terms of more opportunity, where in those older golden year days, whether it was the sixties or seventies or eighties, you did have a limited amount of channels. Um, and venues to to appear in or work work to acquire, and now with um, hundreds and hundreds of channels on cable, and with the uh, advent of the internet and its Hulu and uh, Netflix and Amazon and all these these other outlets, there's a lot more work, a lot more opportunity, a lot more good work being done, and it's not just a few channels anymore. So that's a big change that's taken place uh, in terms of what. Uh, what's out there, you know, for a long time, uh, Westerns for the big rave, like in the 60s, for instance, uh, and detective shows were, you know, all the rage. And they died down. Variety shows. I remember growing up watching variety shows from my youth, you know, for years and, you know, couldn't wait to watch the Smothers Brothers and the Carol Burnett show and all the different variety shows that were out there. And they're, they've gone, they're, they're dead and buried now. So, um, there, and then sitcoms were the, in the 80s and early 90s, I think, were the biggest thing going, uh, certainly through the 70s. And 
sitcoms have taken uh, a backseat as well. There's very few sitcoms now uh, or compared to what there used to be. And I think the quality has gone down quite a bit. I think they're just rehashing a lot of the old theories and themes. But um, it seems like reality TV has really be- uh, found its own place now in uh, in the mainstream. And whether you like it or not, that's that's part of the game. So it's something that to be dealt with or to contend with. Um, I enjoy some reality TV. I I, admit, I do watch it. I enjoy it. Uh, does it take jobs away from from actors? Maybe. Uh, there's like I say, there's so much more now offered in terms of all these different production companies and and where they have a chance to. I mean, anybody with a camera now can can shoot a film, and um, depends on I guess an actor's um, standards for themselves. Uh, my feelings have always been, I was, I love to work. I, and where you mentioned I've done some shorts, I've done some student films where I've been asked to, you know, uh, help out or, or take part in. And I, you know, I, I loved it. I love it. I, lo- I love, I love being part of it. It's fun to work with some of these guys who are up and coming and, um, Yes, I've talked to other actors, for instance, who won't do them, who won't do independent films or uh, some of these lesser projects because they don't pay enough. Well, I like to work and I like I like to grow and I like to be involved and help other people, you know, bring their quality of their their project up as well. So for me, it's even though a lot of this reality seems to be um, taking over to where maybe there's not as much production on the regular television channels, the the uh, the opportunity is out there in other in in other arenas. So, uh, and the, I guess if I do have any complaints about reality, it's that these people become big big stars, making big big money, and they don't seem to have anything to offer for it, it other than people getting used to watching them. There's really no talent involved. You could film a Kardashian. You could film, um, you know, the plumber that down the street and you know be the same interest I mean for me uh people are interesting it just depends on how you film them and edit it and and what you're how you're promoting it so I would rather watch a reality show that had to do with somebody that I admire that has talent I'd rather follow you know Henry Winkler around for two weeks or or two seasons you know uh than than somebody I never heard of and when somebody i I guess I have a prejudice against people that maybe didn't earn it or my standards are a little high. I like my father's were. My father grew up on the great silent screen stars when he was a little boy. So for instance, when I said I was a big Jerry Lewis fan, my dad grew up on Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin and, you know, Harold Lloyd and, you know, geniuses who who created the business. And he saw a guy like Jerry Lewis who just act, acted like a child and he thought no big deal. I feel similarly today about some of the stars that call themselves comedians that I find have no talent whatsoever. They might have one gimmick and get away with it and the world goes nuts for them. And I ask some of my students like who your favorite actors are and they'll mention, I won't say say who, but they'll mention somebody that I have no respect for whatsoever and they're huge, huge comedy stars and think, okay, it's just, it, it's changing times. I understand it. Uh, but you're asking about changes in the business. I think anybody now has an opportunity. I think a lot more people have an opportunity to be discovered or to make it in the reality uh, realm, in the reality venue type of realm. And I think a lot of the great talent that's out there has a, a number of uh, different arenas now to 
sell their talent or to exercise their talent. Uh, I do think, though, that things have become less personal. And I don't know if that's because of the Internet, although I think that has a lot to do with it, or just the way things have changed. In, in the day when I was going to the studios for an audition, for instance, if I went the day ahead of time to pick up the sides or I went from my, the day of my audition, you know, you could you could establish a personal relationship with the people you were meeting. So that if I was on the lot for some other reason, I could stop into Bobby Hoffman's office, who was the casting director at Paramount. And I, he'd, Bobby would say, hey, Daryl, come and sit down. You know, we'd spend 15, 20 minutes just shooting the shit. You could do that with um, Troy Selznick over at, you know, wherever you went on a lot, you could stop in and say hi to people and sit and, and just, you know, kind of break break bread together. And uh, that does not exist anymore. Everybody doesn't, they don't have the time. Everybody does things by text. Every, every picture goes through the... Uh, you know, the electronic age, it's got, got their hands on everything so that you're lucky if you get to meet people. And when you do meet people, it, it's pretty short and, and uh, short lived. And you try to establish as quickly as possible your, your, um, uh, value to them in terms of why you're there in the first place. And then, if, and then after that, if you get a chance to, to talk a little bit and establish a relationship, it's a, it's a change that I'm well aware of now where, I used to just love to stop and talk to anybody and they'd have the time to do the same. Uh, that doesn't really exist anymore. I think the quality of, um, of, of, uh, productions now and talent is at a high level. I think we're seeing better and better, um, writing. I think we're seeing great talent emerge. Um, not all, not all of it. Uh, but if you look at theater uh, a lot, I love to go to, to theater there's some fantastic productions out there, even on the in the in the smaller 99 seat theater venues. Um, I think that the the things you see now on on the internet just blow me away sometimes. How funny or how inventive they are, uh, and the, the same is true with these these cable channels. I think it's not just HBO and Showtime anymore. There's there's a lot of great production and wonderful talent now that we're seeing. Uh, which is, which is terrific. In the old studio days, it was, it was a whole different ball game because it was just this, this, um, repertory company, basically. You know, MGM had more stars than there are in the skies. And it was true. They had this great plethora of great talent and wonderful stars. And, but everybody did what the studio told them to do. And now people are becoming, uh, more inventive and, and, uh, and it seems to me there's a lot of quality. And I think there's more opportunity for a lot more, diverse types of people as well. Every group is going to have a complaint that they're not working enough. I don't blame them. You know, I mean, everybody complains. Uh, I say stop complaining. Go put a smile on. Go have some fun and get yourself a job. <laughs> Do the best you can. But there, there, it's never been easy. Uh, competition's always been stiff. It's a tough business to break into. But if you get lucky enough and get a chance to work in this business, I, I can't think of anywhere else I'd rather spend my time. Daryl, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for asking me to be part of this. You know, Massacre has always been a, a special, I mean, it's been quite a few years, but it's always been a special pleasure for me. I meet people all the time, uh, through the, the Massacre website or on my Facebook or, you know, even, even sometimes, uh, you know, walking into a DMV or somewhere, you know, somebody will say, Oh my God, David. <laughs> it always throws me for a loop and I'm always grateful and appreciative of it. Um, my girlfriend, uh, and I actually met because of Massacre. Um, her father, her father was a big fan. I'm actually a little older than her father. And, uh, he was a big fan of the film and she saw it for the first time when she was in her teens. And, um, 
she reached out to me on Facebook one time not too long ago and uh, wanted to know if we could be friends. And her dad said, yeah, you know, try and see. All he can do is say no. And so I wrote back and said, hi, nice to meet you. And she asked for a picture and we kind of started up, you know, kind of a conversation. And she asked if we could meet sometime. And we, we met and had our first date was a 10-hour date. And we've been together ever since. And I owe it to Massacre. <laughs> so I'm I'm really, uh, I'm always excited and grateful when, Someone like yourself, you know, takes an interest in, and is willing to ask me ask me a little bit about it, and because it has had such an impact on me, even to the, to today, all these years later, I, I couldn't be more proud to be part of it, and I, I'm uh, I'm happy you asked me, so thank you. Sunday, Monday, happy days. Tuesday, Wednesday, happy days. Thursday, Friday, happy days. The weekend comes, my cycle hums, ready to race to you. Gray sky, hello blue. There's nothing can hold me when I hold you. So right, you can't be wrong. Rocking and rolling all week long. 